During World War II, there was a uh, German battleship. Germany launched a battleship, uh, an absolute monster of a ship. They called it the Bismarck. And it was intended to strike fear in the British Navy, and it did just that. In fact, in 1941, uh, when the Bismarck was sent out to battle, it easily sunk the pride of the British Navy. Their greatest battleship, the Bismarck, sunk it in less than 10 minutes. It was a decisive German victory. But something happened in that battle that almost no one noticed at first. A single British torpedo made contact with the Bismarck's rudder. And no one noticed because the rudder is such a very small part of the ship to begin with, and it functions beneath the surface of the water. It went unnoticed. But the fact that the rudder had been damaged forced the Bismarck to simply drive around in circles. It couldn't return to harbor. It couldn't go anywhere. And that allowed the, the British Navy to mount a counterattack. And with the Bismarck helpless to defend itself, they sank it, sent it to the bottom of the ocean, completely destroyed. The pride of the German Navy was gone. And it's a strange thing for us to consider how something so small could control the fate of something so large. And yet for us, it's an amazing illustration. It's a great picture of what James is going to talk to us about today. It's a great picture of one of the more serious issues in all of life, and certainly in the Christian life. James is going to illustrate for us today the power of our words. Or to use James's language, he calls it the power of the tongue, something that is within our body, a very small part of the body, and often unseen, and yet it wields incredible power and influence. James is going to show us that the tongue has the power to build up and bless, but it also has the power to devastate and destroy. And so I don't say this to exaggerate. I think this is true. Uh, there's, there's perhaps no more applicable and needed message in our day than this one right here. This one is one that we can apply immediately and must apply immediately if we're going to love and honor God and love and honor our neighbor. So you need this and I need this. Let's just dive right into it. How is God meant to shape our speech? Well, James has got to diagnose it for us. And he does that beginning in verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. James uh, begins with a warning. He says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, in James's day, being a religious teacher or a teacher in the church, that came with a fair amount of prestige. That was considered a high position. Uh, it, was a, it was a mainly illiterate society, so anybody who knew how to read and then could teach was held in very high esteem. Um, and so you can imagine that there were people in the church that coveted that position. Uh, some of their intentions may have been good, for some their intentions maybe we're not good. It was more of a, of a vain and self-serving desire. But either way, good or bad intentions, James wants to issue a warning that not many of you should become teachers because greater influence is going to bring greater accountability. Those who stand and teach God's word will be subject to stricter judgment. Now, that doesn't mean a harsher judgment necessarily, but it means that you're held accountable for what you teach, and therefore you shouldn't be eager to stand before others and teach the Word of God. Uh, Y'all, some of Jesus' harshest words were, were aimed at false teachers. Uh, Jesus said it would be better for you to have a stone tied around your neck and for you to be drowned in the sea than for you to lead one of my little ones astray. Right. 
Now, James is not trying to scare potential teachers away, but he is trying to sober us up. That when we, and this is something I've got to take to heart, when I stand up and teach the Word of God, there's an accountability that comes with that. I, I pray and hope that you hold me accountable if I speak out of turn or say things that are not in the Scripture, but certainly God's going to hold me to account, and therefore we should not be quick to rush into it. But here's the, here's the main issue. This is not just about teachers. James uh, starts with teachers, but then he broadens it to all of us. You see this in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle or control the whole body as well. Now, I want to encourage you right there, when James uses the term we, that should encourage us, because James is including even himself in that. The great James is part of this we. We all stumble in many ways. Now, that when James talks about stumbling here, uh, he's talking about tripping up, missing the mark. Not necessarily great, big, obvious sins of rebellion. We have those too, perhaps. But James is talking about the fact that we all sin. We all fall short. Even on our best days and given our best efforts, we often trip up and fall short. We stumble. Uh, and we certainly, especially perhaps even, we stumble in what we say. There are no perfect Christians. James includes himself in that. But we have a problem that we all fall short in. What we say is a point of stumbling. It's a point of falling short. Any person, he says, a person who never stumbles in his speech, that's a perfect man, able to control his whole life. And that's a designation we, we hold only for Jesus, right? So take comfort in the fact that if you stumble, especially in your speech, if you fall short day by day in what you say, that you're not alone. We all stumble, starting with the guy behind the microphone. We do, right? James includes himself. Um, but James doesn't condone this, and he makes this clear as we go. The fact that we all fall short, the fact that we all sin, especially sins of speech, is not an excuse for us that we should just shrug our shoulders and be okay with it. No, James wants to call us to account. We all share this burden, we all share this sin, but it's not an excuse to keep stumbling. And so James wants to show us a better way. Now look at verse 3. He says, if we put bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. You see why I told you the story about the Bismarck. So also, verse 5, so also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. Those, those two illustrations, James reaches into real life, th things that people would have known intuitively, and he tries to help us make application here. We put small bits into horses' mouths. We put small little rudders on the back of ships, and although those things are so very small, they exert a massive influence. They're able to control behavior and direction. So also the tongue, James says, is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. James says the tongue has far more power, far more influence than its size would indicate. If we can put bits in the horse's mouth and it controls the horse, if we put a rudder on a ship and it controls the ship, James is saying your words basically will control your entire life. Your words will control your body and your life. 
Now, there's a, there's a distinction that we make right here. In case we're thinking James is really down on the tongue as a physical body part, that that's his concern. No. You notice in the illustrations, it's not really about the thing, the bit and the, the rudder. They're just instruments. A bit all by itself doesn't actually control a horse. It depends on who has the reins in their hand, right? A rudder all by itself doesn't control a ship. He tells us it's whatever uh, inclination the pilot desires. That's what controls the ship. It's, It's who steers the wheel, right? Who directs the rudder. Now, when James talks about the tongue, we we just be very clear here. He's not talking about the body part itself as if the tongue is out of control and and your body and your mind and your heart have no control over it. No, the tongue is an instrument that we direct. And so whatever the tongue does, whatever the tongue says, James says it's the inclination of the pilot. It's the person who possesses the tongue. That's who's at fault. Jesus said it like this. This is from Matthew 12. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. The tongue is simply the instrument that the heart controls. And that's what makes this next section really significant for us. Look at at the middle of verse 5, just a very small statement. But James really starts to crank up the heat. Quite literally, he says, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Uh, some of y'all are too young to remember this, but there was a great uh, Smokey the Bear commercial years ago. So, do y'all remember Smokey the Bear? Uh, it was a commercial that began with a raging forest fire right off the bat, this massive fire out of control. But you noticed as you watched the commercial that it was actually going in reverse. So rather than the fire getting bigger, it actually was getting smaller. And you realize, okay, we're going backward here. Smaller and smaller, more contained, more localized, until eventually that fire got so small that you realize where it came from. It was a single match, and even the match went out, and the tip was red as if it were unlit. And it was such an effective commercial, right, because it showed us the power of a single match to create what we saw at the beginning. Where did all this come from? It came from something very small. And you know, that's exactly James's point. That the tongue is like that single match. We, we consider that our words are no big deal. And yet James tells us that they can do, our words can do unthinkable damage. Wildfire is contained in the mouth. Now, if we just stopped right here, right at the end of verse 5, we would, we would walk out of church with a fairly nice moral lesson. Understand that your tongue wields incredible influence and power, So you need to get it under control. You don't want a wildfire in your life, right? And so just bite it periodically. Keep your mouth shut. Do your best to rein it in. Nice moral lesson. But of course, the Bible's not about just nice moral lessons, and we don't do that at Harvest Church, right? We're not going to dismiss at the end of verse 5. That wouldn't be enough. It's certainly not enough for James. He wants to get down to the very roots of the issue, right? You can't keep your tongue under control, and here's why. Look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. The very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Now, not, here, here's, understand that not every sin involves words. Not every sin involves words. But our words are capable 
of committing basically every sin. Not every sin is a sin of your speech, but our speech is capable of committing just about every sin in the book. James says an entire world of sin is bound up, is contained in the tongue. Therefore, he says, our words defile us, our words stain us, and they even set on fire the whole course of life, the whole cycle of life, James says, from birth to death, can be set on fire, can be consumed and ruined with our words. The sins of our speech have a power to destroy every good thing we have. And I shouldn't have to preach that. We know it's true. There are things perhaps that you said or things that have been said to you that just never go away. The impact is always felt forevermore. The words that we speak have the ability, James says, to set on course, to set on fire the entire course of life. And worse than that, if that wasn't bad enough, James says, the tongue itself is set on fire by hell. The fuel that keeps this fire burning comes from the heart of Satan himself. Now, is James going a little overboard right here? I mean, verse 6, my goodness. Is, is James... Uh, is this what we would call hyperbole? He's just overdoing it to try to make his point. I mean, we, we know that, that our speech needs some work, right? I mean, I, but is it really an all-consuming fire with a gas line down to hell? Is it really that bad? Because I don't tend to think about my words like that. You probably don't either. We, we tend to kind of tidy up our words when it's necessary. If we say anything bad, we make sure it's in private, you know, or make sure it's in a text message that, that we then delete, right, or whatever, you know. Is it really what James is calling it right here? And y'all, this is, this is just an area where the scripture cuts across our rationalization. The scripture cuts across our desire to rationalize our words. Um, we are prone, I know this is true for me, I, I, I assume it for you. We're prone to say, sure, I gossip sometimes. Uh, you know, maybe I'll tell a dirty joke or I'll tell a racist joke. I, you know, sure, I blow up from time to time, blow up at my kids, you know. Uh, but everybody does that. You know, stuff just slips out. You know, and I, and I, and I, I complain and I, I rip on politicians and I tear down my boss behind his back and I, I can be rude on Facebook periodically. But everybody does that. In, in fact, that's our right as Americans, is freedom of speech. Our words are very easy to rationalize. They really are. Um, but then we come to James. We come to James chapter 3, and he offers no out. He offers no rationalization. James gives no soft excuses for us. He admits that we all stumble in many ways, but then he comes right back around, and he shows us the source of our stumbling, the source of our sin, and he just makes no bones about it. It's from hell. Uh, Jesus makes no bones about it. I quoted just a minute ago from Matthew chapter 12, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Jesus wasn't done. Here's what he said right after that. This is Matthew 12, 35. Jesus said, the good man brings out of the good treasure what is good. That is to say, good heart produces good words, right? But also the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Uh, so James is just echoing Jesus. And here's, here's the truth. 
It's an uncomfortable truth, but it's necessary. If we're going to understand who God is, how God operates, you know, God is holy. God is perfectly righteous. And in God's holiness and righteousness, he never just shrugs his shoulders at sin the way that we do. God never rationalizes sin. He never looks at my sin and says, well, you know, you were just a product of your environment. You were just hanging out with the wrong crowd. No, you just, you, it just slipped out. God doesn't rationalize sin. He's holy. And the truth is what Jesus confirms. Unholy speech, when it comes out of my mouth, it's because it originated from a perversion in my heart, unholiness in my heart. And no matter how I try to rationalize my sinful speech, Jesus calls it evil. And James says it's from hell. And I am guilty. There's no rationalizing my sinful words. And if we do that, if we try to excuse ourselves and say, well, everybody does it, no big deal, then we'll never be grieved by that sin the way we're meant to be. And we'll never do anything about it. We'll simply pacify ourselves. And we will not come to the Scripture and allow the abrasiveness of the Scripture to lead us to righteousness. That's the whole goal here. Not to feel guilty and say, well, you know, everybody does it, so no big deal. No, to feel the weight of the sin in the hopes that we will turn to Christ and repent. This is an obvious problem that has to be addressed, but it's not easily solved. Look at what James says next. This is chapter 3, verse 7. It's a problem, but not one that we solve uh, through simple self-discipline and self-control. Look at verse 7. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. Go to SeaWorld. You'll see it. It's awesome. But no one, verse 8, but no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Um, No one can tame the tongue. That seems excessive too, right? Surely I can, surely you can. Now James says this is not self-control that's going to get you out of this problem. This is not a a higher degree of spiritual discipline that's going to solve this problem. He says, as as a matter of factly, there is no human being on this earth who can tame their tongue. He says the tongue is restless. That's a wonderful way to illustrate it. We know this is true. You wake up in the morning, your tongue is ready to go. The rest of your body might not be, but your tongue is ready, always on the ready. The tongue is restless. It never tires of expressing what's in our hearts, whether good or bad. And perhaps worst of all, James says, as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, my restless tongue makes me a hypocrite. Look at how he finishes this in verse 9. Look at the hypocrisy. With it, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. Uh, Just a few minutes ago, we sang uh, these words. We sang the words, praise to the King of Kings. You are my everything, and I will adore you. 
And I sang those words, and I meant those words. But the same tongue that worshipped God through that song is going to jump out of the gate this week, every opportunity I get, and I'm going to be tempted to tear down, to accuse, to envy, to gossip, to slander, without even thinking twice about it. And I'm not going to stand up here and pretend otherwise, that somehow I'm above this. I'm not. No one can tame the tongue. We will bless God and we will curse others with the same tongue. And James says when we do that, we're actually speaking out against God. We're blessing God in worship, but then we're speaking against his image. We curse men who have been made in the image of God. We're, we're talking out of both sides of our mouth. And so James asked the question, it's rhetorical, but he says, how can both fresh and bitter water come out of the same spring? How can olives come from a fig tree? How can both blessing and cursing come from the same mouth? Brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Is that an understatement? This ought not to be for those who claim to know and follow Jesus. Our tongue makes us hypocrites. And so what do we do? All right, let's get to that part of the sermon now. Okay, tell me what to do. Well, y'all, if I, could, if I could narrow it down to just one word, what do we do about this? Uh, the word is repentance. The word is repentance. And, of course, that is a word we find often in the Bible. Uh, but what does repentance mean? I, I used to have a kind of a false and very flat understanding of repentance, that it simply means just stop. Just stop doing it. Stop, stop the sin. Whatever the sin is, just quit. Uh, as if we have the power to do that. James has already told us we don't. You can't tame your tongue. No, repentance is more three-dimensional than that. Repentance in the Scripture is actually an act of faith. Repentance means more than just stopping your sin. It actually means to turn, to change your mind and your direction. That you're turning from your sin, but you're also turning to something else or someone else, to be more specific. You turn from sin and turn instead to Christ. That's what it means to repent. Now, James has told us that as Christians, we're meant to bridle or control our tongues. So how do we do that? How do we repent from our sinful speech and live a new life? I'm, I'm going to give you three things here. Two are very practical, and I pray that we, they'll be helpful, but they're not enough. It's the third thing that will be the ultimate decisive factor in this battle for us. So I'm going to give you two helpful things. If you, if you want to take a mental note or write them down, great. But then hold on for the third, okay? Because the third will be the most important. Two practical points of advice here. Um, how do we take better control over our tongue? Well, the first thing is, and this would be, I think, fairly obvious, but let's, how about let's just all commit to speak less? Uh, one of the great ways to uh, cut the fuel line from hell is to just keep your mouth shut, Okay? Uh, James commands it in chapter 1. He says, Let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Right? Uh, here's, what, uh, here's what Proverbs chapter 10 says. I love this verse. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. You see what that says? The more you talk, the more unavoidable is your sin. And so it's wise to keep your mouth shut. Stop speaking so impulsively. Stop saying everything that comes to your mind. Now, this is actually the easiest habit for us to form. 
because it doesn't require a whole lot of, of, um, of changing how we speak. It's just changing the fact that we speak. And so listen, when you feel the urge to gossip, just be silent. Leave the room. Don't return that text message. Or counteract gossip with, an, with a compliment. Stand up for that person. Change the subject. Whatever you've got to do to remove yourself from that temptation. Keep your mouth shut. If you feel the urge to argue on the internet, to argue on Facebook, to, to say something scathing that you know is tearing someone else down, close your laptop. If you can't shut your mouth and shut your ability to type, go for a walk. Do something else. If you feel the desire to complain and tear other people down, open your Bible, and rather than you speaking, let God speak to you. Let God speak words of truth and righteousness. Close your mouth, open your Bible. Now, that's helpful advice. That it really is. That, that, that would get us somewhere, but it's not enough. I already said it. It's not enough. Keeping your mouth shut will help keep the fuel from reaching the fire, perhaps a little bit. It's not enough to change your heart, but it will help. So there you go. That's one. Two, and I'm preaching these to myself, a second great habit. That's, I, I, I went negative, what you shouldn't do, but now think positively. Practice the art of gratitude and blessing. Practice gratitude and blessing. Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Isn't that a great promise? Both death and life are in the power of the tongue, but those who love it will eat its fruit. To those who, James tells us the tongue can be an instrument of Satan, but it can also be an instrument in God's hands. It can be something that builds up, that blesses that is fruitful, and we can enjoy the good fruit of it. And so here's a question. Are you and I, are we regularly speaking words of gratitude both to God and about God? Gratitude. Gratitude extinguishes fire. Gratitude will, will turn an entire conversation around. Gratitude will turn your life around. Are we speaking words of gratitude both to God in prayer and about God? See, here's, here's the wonderful thing. Y'all, if you live to be 110 years old, you will never one day in your life run out of things to be grateful for. Not one. God is the author and giver of every good and perfect gift, James 1 told us. There is never a lack for material. There is simply a lack of gratitude. And so practicing gratitude in how we speak replaces things that we might otherwise say. Um, complaint, tearing down, right? Gratitude instead. There's so much to be grateful for. And the practice of blessing. Blessing works the same way. What if we practiced genuine, specific, intentional encouragement and blessing of other people? What if we took the words of God and spoke the words of God to people? We actually took encouragement from the scripture and made that the words of our mouth. If we practiced loving encouragement toward others where we might otherwise be prone to gossip or complain or bitterness or cynicism. We practice encouragement instead. What if we took seriously the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4? This is one of my favorite verses. Paul says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Isn't that wonderful? Paul says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. But it's not just the negative, not just what we ought to avoid. He says, here's how you speak instead. Let your speech be with grace, 
A, a, a word for edification, which means to build up rather than tear down according to the need of the moment, which means it's timely. We don't just say everything that comes to our mind. We're intentional in our speech. And he says it will give grace to those who hear. It will bless others and show them the heart of Jesus. What if we practice gratitude and blessing? Now, again, I said this already. In the end, this won't be enough. These are wonderful habits. They will bless you. They will help you. They will bless those that you encounter. But in the end, James said, remember, no one can tame the tongue. You cannot discipline and self-control your way out of this problem. And that's why the answer, when we talk about repentance, remember, repentance is twofold. It's not just what you turn away from, it's whom you turn to. And that is the ultimate key. That's the, that's the decisive factor in this whole thing. Repentance means you've got to turn from your sin to Jesus. Here's the wonderful truth, y'all. There is a person who never once sinned in his speech. There is a person who never had to go back, not once, and apologize for something he said out of turn. There's never been a person who could be credibly accused of gossip or slander, save for one, his name is Jesus. Jesus Christ lived and spoke entirely, perfectly to the glory of God. And yet on the cross, on the cross, the scripture tells us that Jesus bore our sins in his body. He who knew no sin became sin on your behalf and on my behalf. And, and here's the deeper level reality, y'all, of what that means is that Jesus Christ on the cross took upon himself the full punishment for our words. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 12? Every careless word we will give an account for. By our words we will be condemned. And on the cross, Jesus took the responsibility for that condemnation, for those words. As if he is the one who spoke them, God treated him as we deserved. And so every careless word, Jesus Christ died to forgive. All gossip, every lie, all perversion, all racism, all rage, all slander, you name it, his blood was shed for it. Every sin of speech, he died to forgive. And so what we can grieve the fact that our words otherwise condemn us. We can grieve the fact that we cannot tame our tongues. We may think better of ourselves, but James sets us straight. We can grieve the fact that there's really ultimately at the bottom of all things, there's nothing that we can do about this problem. But in our grief, we come to this place. I pray of great joy and celebration over the fact that God so loved sinners that he sent his son into the world to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to save us. And by faith in Jesus, we are granted a new heart. And with a new heart comes a renewed tongue. If Jesus Christ was right, and of course he was, in Matthew 12, the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Well, what happens if Jesus, by his grace, transforms the heart and makes it new? Then we may actually begin to speak words of grace and not a curse. We can be changed in this. And y'all, I want to encourage you as we close.
I think a lot of us, we carry our faith in Jesus Christ simply on the top level of our heart. It's like floating on the surface of the water. We believe in Jesus, but it hasn't yet really sunk down deep. And that's why our words continue to betray us. That's why we still act the way we do and live the way we live and think the way we think and decide the way we decide is because we believe in Jesus, but it hasn't gotten down deep into the fundamental structures of our heart so that what we say in this case might reflect a heart that's truly being transformed. And I want to encourage you in this because that's what James has been telling us throughout this entire book, that there is a kind of faith that if it simply rests on the surface of the heart, we believe it, we profess it, but it does not result in change, it doesn't result in sanctification, in transformation, then James says that faith cannot, will not save you. What Jesus came to give us is meant to produce change in us. And I can say this safely for myself. I am still a sinner in speech. But it was my speech as a teenager that was perhaps the most decisive um, uh, revealer to me of my lostness. That when I, I knew about Jesus, I went to church, I assumed that I was a Christian, and yet my words betrayed me to such a degree that I knew something was wrong. And only when I came to the scripture for the first time on my own was it revealed to me that I cannot be good enough for him. That's not what this is about. I need grace to save me. My speech is the indicator. It showed me my need. And y'all, I think perhaps more than any other sin in, in our lives, for most of us, it's exactly that. Our speech betrays us. It shows us how desperately we need not just improvement to keep things from slipping out. The problem runs so much deeper than that. We need grace to forgive and cleanse and transform. And so my hope today is that if you, if you find in your heart a surface-level faith, I believe in Jesus, but I know that my life does not reveal that it's sunk down deep, that we would pray for that, that we would pray for that, that in the depths of the heart, what fills the heart will control the tongue. Jesus said, I want what fills my heart to be the very grace and love and righteousness of Christ. But it will never happen on the surface. It will never happen if we continue to rationalize words that Jesus himself condemns. And so we have to let repentance do its work this morning. You and I both, that God through his word, God through his Holy Spirit, would convict us of sin and cause grief in our hearts over our words. We're meant to feel that way. But may the same spirit, may the same truth of the word also drive us now to the beauty and the mercy of Jesus. Repentance means turning from sin, but also turning to Christ and realizing that Jesus Christ gladly, willingly, perfectly cleansed every single stain. The words that have defiled and condemned have been forgiven once and for all. And therefore, we are saved from our words, our sins, and now newly equipped to speak words of life. Let's pray that we would not just believe it, but that we'd live it out. Father God, we ask this morning for a cleansing work. And I just, I, I pray that you'd give me the courage and the, the honesty to go first in this. I need this desperately. I need you desperately. I so easily rationalize what I say. 
Father, show us what's true. As abrasive as your word is today, Lord, let it be abrasive. That the tongue is a fire, a restless evil, full of deadly poison, set on fire by hell. Thank you, Lord, that you don't sugarcoat what is true. That we are sinners. And that we are desperately needy. We need grace. Lord, thank you that you, in spite of what we deserve, Lord, you, um, you gave your, our judgment to your son. That in spite of, Lord, what, what, what we had earned, the payment was taken care of on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that, that, that the, the goal that we all come to today as we sit in our chairs is not to just get beaten to a pulp at how bad we are. We know we're no good. But that in our need, in our struggle, in our acknowledgement of our sinfulness, that we would see the Lord Jesus Christ and his blood shed, and we would rejoice. Yes, we were so bad that he, that he had to die but we are so loved that he was glad to die. And Lord, let that grace be what drives us to repentance. Let your kindness, Lord, be what drives us to repentance. That you love us. And because you love us, you, you call us to righteousness. You call us to a way of speaking that reflects the very person and heart and the very mouth and tongue of Jesus himself. And Father, we know we've got a long way to go in this, Lord, but give us, grant us today a truly repentant heart that we turn to Jesus and sincerely ask, Lord, change what's in my heart so that the mouth might speak from that which fills the heart and the heart, my heart, Lord, make my heart full of grace and truth and love and mercy and kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you don't just save us and stamp us for heaven, but that you reach in and you do the necessary work to make us new. And Lord, I pray that for us, for Harvest Church, that if we do nothing else, <laughs> that in our speech, we would reflect newness. Because I know, Lord, what your word says, if we speak in a way that reflects Jesus, it will control the whole body as well. All of life will change if you will deal with us graciously in this area. So we ask it, we desperately need it, and we thank you for it in Christ. Amen. Amen.